Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. Do welcome to our pulpit this evening a guest, the Reverend Arch Van Devender, a close friend and associate of Barry Curriton, uh, to bring us God's Word. So we ask you to pay attention and uh, listen attentively as we hear God's Word and uh, prepare for the installation service. I want to thank Susquehanna Presbytery for the privilege of coming before you tonight and bringing God's Word to you. I pray the Lord blesses the reading and understanding which comes from His Word. I would ask that you please stand as I read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 2 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. I remember them like like it was yesterday. I remember their names. I remember the house they lived in. I remember their entire sad lives. I was a recently ordained deacon at Severna Park Presbyterian Church, and I tried to put some form and content to the mercy, diaconal mercy calling, which we were just trying to get uh, in some fashion going. We started the deacon's fund, and the congregation was very generous. And we, we tried to get a grip on what it was that God was calling us to do in this. There were numerous requests that came to us in the church, as I'm sure your church has also. And we recognized, as do you, that most simply wanted a handout and not much else. But we believed Jesus' statement. That one where he said that, When you do something to one of these, the least of my brethren, you do it unto me. We we really believe that. And so we were trying to get a a feel for how we're to use discernment and judgment and then minister to Christ through, (coughs) through those who are brought to us. And so I won't call them by name, but this family came to my attention. They were from the coal mines of West Virginia. They had a passel of kids, ranging from very small to about 10. The father spent his time smoking pot, sleeping with various wives up and down the area, and keeping his wife pregnant and occasionally roughing her up. More than once, I saw nothing in the fridge but a nearly empty half gallon of milk. He was a day laborer. He was a man used to living on the edge, 
she was resigned to her fate as only the very poor can be. And true to her roots, there is no way in this world she would report anything to the authorities. Now I had many a sit down with these people and I did get them to come to church. I, I had them to my house. I did quite a bit over the period of time I worked with them. But I saw something very quickly in my interaction with them at this point. All I could really do for them was apply band-aids. I could get some food in the fridge. But how could I get them to see beyond the immediate need that they certainly had for the, for the things of the daily life and see beyond that to their need for a Savior? Both profess to be Christians. I would find that hard to believe. But they, was profess- they professed it. She was suffering very definitely, mentally, physically, and spiritually. But when you started talking to them as a counselor would talk to them about God, they basically, based on their experience, just kind of wrote it off as God talk. We were quite skeptical about preachers trying to sell them something. And what I saw very early there was that I did not have a theology for suffering. I could not promise them that their lives were going to get better if they just simply believed, physically better. All it would have taken was for him to get a DUI or a car accident or a pneumonia or get picked up for many of the things he was doing and spend a few years in jail. And their, their already sad life could get a lot worse. And what they needed... And what I didn't have an answer for was their suffering. The experience of suffering itself. They needed something that would move beyond that to the comfort that God, through Jesus Christ, could bring in suffering. So I decided I'd go to seminary. I decided to go to seminary so I could find some answers about all of these things, these questions that were being raised. What surprised me then and what surprises me now to this very day is that I have yet to find in seminary a single course named Suffering 101. And I wonder right down to the present day if we pastors and elders who have been given spiritual charge over God's flock are really attuned to the suffering of our people who are in the pews. Are we really aware of how the Lord Jesus Christ expects us to understand their suffering and how to help them understand their suffering and then see a pathway to victory that suffering uniquely provides. I can't say that I have brought together a theology of suffering, but I've come a little way. And perhaps this passage might serve to illustrate some of what I've learned. Now, Barry is the one that asked me to preach from these verses. And as you know, Barry is a very gentle guy. What you may not know is he can be quite stubborn. So I didn't object. It wouldn't have done me any good anyway. But part of me looking at this text said, really? You want me to preach on this at your installation 
I mean, when you preach at a pastor's installation, you're supposed to talk about the glorious thing, you know, the, the upbeat lifting things and the stuff that really gets you excited. Let's go get them sinners and bring them to Christ. But this passage, it's about expectations, but it's about the expectation of suffering. Paul here is, of course, talking about the context of his own life. But for Paul and for those to whom he writes, suffering was the status quo. Look at verse 5. The sufferings of Christ abound in us. I'm reading from the New King James. I'm not sure how yours uh, uh, translates. Verse 6. The Corinthians will endure the same sufferings which we, speaking as the inclusive we, also suffer. Verse 7, Paul says he knows that they are partakers of the sufferings. Now, what does this first scan teach us? Suffering is the context into which the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is most clearly and powerfully communicated. One thing we can say about suffering, it is very personal. And therefore, suffering is the very sphere in which the gospel becomes personal. It doesn't take any more than a quick scan of the gospels to see how Jesus focused on the suffering in such a way as to point it as a sign to his own person. He healed the sick, he cured the blind, he, he raised up the lepers and fed the hungry, but that's not all he did. He also forgave the deep sins of a prostitute. Sin is suffering. I speak to people who know what sin is, I believe, and you know the suffering that brings into our lives. He's the one that gave living water to a hopeless Samaritan woman. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ ministered to those who suffer. Not just with physical problems, but to those for whom the world weighs heavy on their souls. He saw, as God the Father has ordained it, that suffering is or can be the plow which breaks up the hard, dry ground in a sinner's soul and makes that soul ready for the gospel. Now, suffering in this life, even outright persecution, which is the backdrop for this passage, is not present because God just allows it to happen. It's coming along and he says, okay, I can't stop it. You might as well go on. Brothers and sisters, suffering is here because God decreed it to happen. If he didn't decree it to happen, it wouldn't be here. Therefore, suffering has a purpose. It plays a role in God's plan. It is not meaningless. And before we can ever hope to help a person begin to start on the pathway to victory, they must see that their suffering is in some way blessed. They have been chosen to suffer. They have been chosen to suffer. Now, 
Paul says this specifically to the Philippians. But God sees suffering as the backdrop where faith will shine most brilliantly. In some moment of insanity, I chose to preach a sermon series on the revelation given to John, as I'm filling in as the interim pastor at Liberty Presbyterian Church. And just recently, I covered the four horsemen of the apocalypse in chapter 6. And that passage superbly illustrates the point that I'm making here. The Lord Christ is moving through history throughout time and space and he is from that time in which he ascended to heaven right down today he is withdrawing the restraints on all of the things that the four horsemen give forth they are talking about the wars and rumors of wars which i call a culture of violence the economic suffering that comes about when evil takes over the heart of people who are rich and they use it to abuse others and then of course death and all of its forms he's actively withdrawing the restraints on that he's using suffering that then comes as a result of those things to prove that apostate mankind is insane for not embracing him as lord but it's also there to stir up in the elect A zeal for ministry. A zeal for showing forth their faith in the face of suffering and advancing the kingdom of God in that environment. Brothers and sisters, suffering is all around us. It is in our pews, even among those who appear to be most comfortable and secure. Many Stoic Christians sit there in fear that someone will really find out what their life is actually like. Many, living in outwardly comfortable means, have more in common with that family from West Virginia than they would care to admit. Human misery and suffering is the ethos, the atmosphere into which we have been sent. It is where we are to make disciples by baptizing and teaching them to obey. Ministry to the suffering must not take back burner to other things. While we focus on building plans and the nice things that go on with all of those business type operations, ministry to the suffering must never be thought as secondary. We have to see, as Paul saw in in verse 5, that we've been called to enter into the sufferings of Christ. The sufferings of Christ are those that are found in this holy church, which is his body on earth. And he is united, or the church is united to him in its suffering, even as it is united to him in its salvation. And so this first main point from what I was seeing here today is that suffering is the status quo for Christ's church and we are called to minister in that suffering.
Next, Paul teaches us here how we're to minister to those in suffering. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Paul teaches us that we are to comfort and console others by demonstrating how we have been comforted and consoled by God in our suffering. Now in these verses, these five verses, the New King James uses the words comfort or console ten times. Ten times. You would think he wanted us to notice it. You would think that he's trying to make a point. Well, he certainly did. These words, comfort and console, all translate the same basic Greek word underneath it in its cognate forms. It is the Greek term parakaleo, which of course comes from, makes the noun, from which the noun paraclete comes, or the Holy Spirit. I don't think this is a coincidence. Now let's look at how Paul makes his point here. The triune God is the God of all comfort, who comforts us so that unto the end of, for the very purpose of, that we are to comfort others in exactly the same way we ourselves have been comforted. Back when I was teaching biblical Greek at seminary, I told my students, sit up and pay attention whenever God uses a purpose clause. Because purpose clauses give us insight into the very mind of God. It teaches us how he thinks. And that opens up then how we should think about stuff he's talking about so that we can get on board with him. And so the purpose clause here is found in verse 4. The New King James says that we may be able to comfort. I think it's best read a little differently. God comforts us in order that we are empowered to comfort others. In other words, there's a precondition that has to be met in order for him to get what he wants us to do out of it. It's not a bare ability that God gives here. It's God's purpose and meaning to both our suffering and to the comfort he gives us in that suffering. Now I hope, brothers and sisters, this kind of sets you back on its heels. It certainly does me. It was a hard lesson that I had to learn. I could not bring comfort, true comfort, peace, and hope into another person's life until I knew the truth that God himself is our comfort in the midst of suffering. I'm sorry, this thing keeps slipping off and it goes right over my head. It's going to fall off my back in a minute. Now... I cannot bring comfort, peace, and hope into another person's life until I know what that comfort is, how God is our help, our present help in time of trouble. I had to know that. I couldn't just know that as theory. I had to know it as a, uh, for myself. I had to reorganize the sufferings that I have encountered through life And so to learn from it. Now, I've never starved. I grew up in poverty. 
I felt the pain of rejection, the shame of sin, the sudden loss of loved ones. Life is not a bed of roses for anybody. But what I had to come to grips with is how does God comfort us? How is he comforting me now? Where do I see the, whole, the presence of the Holy Comforter in my life? And most importantly, how has this become my consolation? If I can't answer those questions, then I have to ask, how am I able to comfort anybody else? My brothers in ministry, I speak to you and ask that you take Paul's words to heart. Whatever sufferings God brings you is part and parcel of his equipping of you for your ministry. I often tell people I'm a pastor because I know sin up close and personal. I know what it means, therefore, to be forgiven much. And therefore, I can preach forgiveness. In the same way, before we can bring consolation and comfort to God's suffering people, we must know suffering up close and personal. Then we're able to assume the role of witness. We're able to say, this is what I know to be true. And now those bare propositions take on a different level of power. Then the sincerity of the gospel is present. So what is the nature of this comfort and consolation that we share with others? For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now notice how Paul links the suffering in his life directly to the sufferings of Christ. And immediately his consolation abounds through Christ. He identifies suffering and consolation with the person of the Lord. This points to the tension of a person that a person must embrace with regard to suffering, both going through it or helping others. Let's note that the nature of this comfort and consolation can be described, and I will try to describe it. But I assure you, brothers and sisters, it can only be known through experience. How do we know the peace which God brings in the midst of suffering? How do we know that? We know it by experiencing it and pointing others to it as the goal to which they can aspire. How can they know the love of God that upholds us in suffering and oftentimes becomes the most passionate and the most tender and the most present that we could possibly imagine? How can they know that unless it has been experienced? It is a process like sanctification, and it is endemic to sanctification. The comfort that God gives us in tribulation, whether outright persecution, as it was with Paul and the Corinthians, or the crises of the soul, which comprise the, the part and parcel of living in a fallen world, comfort is found by living in tension with Jesus' lordship and his loving compassion. Now, why do I say tension? The overarching framework is Jesus' lordship. Comfort comes with what we have already said. Our suffering, however it registers, has not happened by chance. That's incredibly comforting to people when you tell them that. 
when they actually see that this is not outside of God's plan for them to suffer, all of a sudden it begins to make a little bit more sense. And then to understand that he's brought it there so that they can be victorious in their suffering. That's a hard nut to swallow for anybody. But it is the first absolutely essential step towards consolation. Perhaps you've heard of a fellow by the name of Viktor Frankl. He wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. It's built on what he learned as a Jewish prisoner of war in the Holocaust. And this is what he learns. That which keeps us going in unbelievable suffering is to understand that every moment is precious. Every moment gives us an opportunity to rise above the suffering we're enduring. In fact, we transcend suffering by embracing the truth that suffering proves that our lives have a meaning beyond that suffering. That's heavy-duty stuff. I don't know if Frankel ever became a Christian. He does quote the New Testament in his book, but he quotes it more as a philosopher than as a religious point. But our comfort and consolation in suffering is, is when we see it as part of our salvation, as Paul speaks about in verse 6. God, through suffering, is bringing us to himself. And our consolation is to understand that and to have it begin to see the way in which he is tenderly upholding us in that suffering in order to bring about his good works in us, through us, whatever he's doing, to which end one day we will rejoice. This then is the other side of the tension in which we live. The Lordship of Christ points us to the pathway that includes suffering, and that his immediate compassionate sustaining of us in suffering is the other part of the tension. The same Paul wrote these beloved words, neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor heights nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul the sufferer wrote those words. He knows that it is Jesus himself that upholds us in our trial. He opens up comfort to us that we can embrace and and recognize and embrace. Sometimes it is just the dawning awareness of him being with you. Sometimes it's how he brings others to bring you just that encouragement you need. Sometimes it's the dawn of a beautiful day that gives us a moment of peace. Sometimes it is that particular comfort that happens in prayer when you know that your prayers are being heard. Always, it is God's Word speaking to us tenderly through His Holy Spirit, giving us just what we need to do what He's calling us to do. This then is the tension and the answer. And this is a pathway to walk on in which we're to lead others. It's knowing that Christ is present in our troubles that has promised to not leave us 
but to send a comforter is true. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Paraclete, ministers to us as he does and points us to Christ. And he points us to Christ in our suffering. And our faith moves toward him in our suffering such that our lives take on meaning and purpose because he is in it. Then all that we endure is not being wasted, but being used God by God to bring about good. And that we are promised a crown so superbly precious that anything we suffer is just a momentary affliction. Brothers and sisters, that's not a formula we repeat. That's an experience we share. I can't sit down without but just leaving you in a, at the end of a thread there about this family from West Virginia. I helped them. I took the lead in helping them for, oh, probably a year, year and a half. Got them to my house. Uh, invested time, some resources. But got to know them. And you know what, brothers and sisters? At some point along the way in doing that, I woke up and realized I loved them. I loved those guys. Crusty? Oh, yeah. But I loved them. And that gave me just the merest insight into how Christ loves me. And that was truly precious. After about a year and a half, they packed up and moved back to West Virginia. They were in a bit better state than they were when they first came. And about five to seven years later, my wife and I were sitting watching TV in the living room one night, and there was a knock on the door. (laughs) I opened the door, and there all of them were. They had had a couple more babies by then. I do not, I don't take any pride in this. But the first thing that went through my mind is, oh, Lord, they want a place to stay for the night. (laughs) I'm a sinner. (laughs) But the husband looked at me and said, Arch, we were going through this area on our way to Delaware to meet with or to visit relatives. And he said, I just wanted to share with you what's happened We're regular in church. We're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I can confess that I am saved. That's him speaking. And I looked over at that wife. And she had the most beautiful smile I've ever seen. And I know that what happened to him was because she ministered in her suffering to him rather than with a grudge and with resentment. She showed the love of Christ to him. And he shook my hand and he said, I just wanted to stop in and tell you how much we appreciate the love you showed us when we were here. They turned and walked away. I haven't seen them since. It was worth it. I call on us tonight, brothers and sisters, to embrace Christ's claim on our lives to be his servants and his witnesses to the blessed character of Christian suffering. 
I do not speak to the suffering that is experienced by people outside of Christ. It has its purpose, but it is not unto salvation. I speak only of the suffering of God's people that God's people must face and how they must discover God's comfort in it. And I call on us to remember that though none of us should actively seek out sufferings, yet when God brings it upon us, we must embrace it rather than question God's character or his love. It comes to us as an expression of his love because he has purposes for us in it. He has purposes for us in it. Not the least of these is that we will know the consolation that Christ brings more immediately in suffering than in any other manner. Would you pray with me? Our Lord and the God, I thank you for our brother Paul and for his experiences which he has used to teach us. And Lord, I ask that you give us that understanding of the gospel that so changes us from the inside out that we are able to console others with the consolation that we have received in our own life. Bless us unto that end. For I ask it in the name of our blessed Savior. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.